1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 23 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi, Raj.
0: Hi, Timothy. Great to see you again. Good to see you
1: again. Now, we have a, uh, a magical sort of guest today, and a wonderful guest in, in so many ways. And Raj, maybe you should do the introduction.
0: Yes, so this is the uh, legendary John Perkins, um, who I had the great good fortune to meet and get to actually spend 10 days t- together traveling and staying in these amazing places in, uh, in Ecuador. We were on a Pachamama Alliance founders journey with uh, the three founders, Lynn Twist, Bill Twist, and John Perkins. And we'll get into that more in our conversation, but John has had an incredible trajectory in his life and career Uh, has bridged the uh, modern and the traditional worlds, uh, the uh, uh, indigenous cultures of the Amazon and Central and South America, as well as in the worlds of uh, academia and international economic development. Um, And as I said, I met him and I went on that 10 day journey, which was life changing for me. I was writing the healing organization at the time. And Lynn basically told me, you need to come on this trip. if If you're trying to write about healing, You will learn more in these 10 days than you could in a few years of research. So, she pretty much ordered me to (laughs) to delay the book and just come on the trip. And I'm so glad I did. And it was, we'll get into that a little more as we chat here. But uh, a great part of that was listening to John share many stories and impart wisdom and take us through certain practices, as well as uh, get his ideas around the, uh, the healing organization as well. So, welcome, John, and thank you for being with us today.
2: Well, it's great to be with, with you, Raj, again, and, and with you, Tim, Timothy, also. And it's just, it's, 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 I'm so honored. I, I love the work that both of you do. It's such important work, and this is such an incredi- incredibly uh, critical time to be doing that work. So I'm, I'm very honored to be here today with you. Thank you.
1: Well, one of the things that I note is you've written 10 books that cover an incredible range of topics. And I suppose at one level, one of the books you're best well, best known for is The Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And at the same time, your most recent book, Touching Jaguar, goes in a very different direction vis-a-vis connecting the modern world to the ancient shamanic world. So I'd, maybe a good place to start is just tell us how, how you went from the Economic hitman, self-confessed economic hitman, to your latest book.
2: Well, Timothy, the, the, the short version. <laughs> I after I graduated from business school in 1968, I joined the Peace Corps. Peace Corps sent me into the Amazon, uh, and I spent three years in Ecuador. Two of them in the Amazon, about two of them in the Amazon, and one up in the Andes. And. Um, Although I was supposed to be forming credit and savings co-ops, that was my supposed job with the Peace Corps, I I quickly discovered that the people I was working with had no currency. It was all barter. (laughs) It's it's pretty hard to have a credit and savings co-op when it's your bananas for my papayas, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) So I really didn't have anything to do except learn from them. And at one point I became very, very ill. I, I lost a tremendous amount of weight. I couldn't keep any food down. I was out in the middle of the, the, the Amazon. I was a three, three days of a very difficult journey to the nearest medical facility. I couldn't even stand up. There was no way I could do this. I was resigned to dying. And uh, one night a, a shaman said he could heal me, and he did. Uh, and he really did it by taking me on this <clears throat> shamanic trance, this shamanic journey, and on this journey, uh, I have my eyes closed, it's nighttime, I'm in this wild place, this lodge with a shaman who's fierce looking, he's got tattoos on his face, and he's, he's naked except for a loincloth. He was pretty scary. to did not look like anything I've ever seen. I come from New Hampshire, you know, <laughs> they don't look like that in New Hampshire. And uh, in any case, I've got my eyes closed, I, I, I see this amorphous form, and the shaman yells to me, touch the jaguar. And I open my eyes and look all around because it's nighttime in the jungle. And where's that jaguar, you know? And he says, no, 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 close your eyes and see the jaguar. And, and uh, this amorphous shape shifted into the jaguar. And, a, and I heard a voice say, uh, son, it'll kill you. It was like my mother's voice. At that moment, I realized that I'd grown up in New Hampshire, as I said, with very modest, mild foods. We didn't eat anything very interesting back in, in those days. And suddenly I'm in the Amazon eating very, very strange foods. Mm-hmm. And the people in the, in the Amazon don't drink water because they know the rivers have organic matter that's not safe to drink the water. So the, they make a kind of beer. The women chew manioc root and spit it. It sets up a fermentation process that, that creates a type of beer, you can call it. You can add water to that. It's alcohol and it, it purifies the water. So, i'm drinking a lot of spit beer because (laughs) there wasn't any carrier you know there wasn't any bottled water out there i'm drinking a lot of squirming white grubs and other weird foods because there weren't any cliff bars and what i realized on that journey is every time i did this i'd hear a voice saying it'll kill you at the same time I saw how healthy and robust the Shwa people who was with, the, the, these indigenous people are, they're hunters and gatherers, they're, they're robust, and they live to be very old if they don't die in a hunting accident or something like that. So that night I saw that it was not the food and drink killing me, it was my perception. And I was healthy after that. And the shaman asked, said as payment to him, I needed to become his apprentice. Well, I have to say, Timothy and, and Raj, that I just graduated from business school. It's, 19, it's 1969. Uh, there was no future in shamanism in those days. I had no interest,
1: but the guy saved me. The, the graduate had just come out, and weren't they saying, it's plastics?
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. and I believe that, you know? <laughs> But, you know, the guy saved my life, so, so I, I, I became his apprentice. And the first thing he taught me was he said, you know, touching the jaguar means that when, when there's something that's blocking us, when we have a fear, if we run from it, it'll chase us. But if we touch it, if we confront it, it'll give us power and energy. It'll help us change our perception. And when we change our perception, we change our reality." And that's what had happened. i changed my perception of what the food was doing to me from killing me to making me healthy. And it worked. And you know, after that, I studied with shamans in many other places. I, after I became an economic hitman, I traveled around the world. And I always tried to take time off and study with shamans in Indonesia and Iran and Egypt and all over Latin America. And everywhere I went, I, I found that they have that same common belief that we change our reality by altering our perceptions. And of course, as I looked into this, I, I came to realize that that's the basis for modern psychotherapy, it's the basis for psycho, for for quantum physics. It's a it's the basis for business, advertising, public relations. It's the basis for politics. It control you know. Our, our perceptions control our reality. There is no United States. There is no England where you are. There, there are no religions, there are no corporations, except as we perceive them. And when enough people accept a perception, codified into law and take the actions, then it has a huge impact on reality. It was an incredible teaching experience. And you know, then after I got out of the Peace Corps, I went back to doing what I've been trained to do. I became an economist. I became chief economist at a consulting firm. I became an economic hitman. So the transition kind of went that way. And then after I quit being an economic hitman, when I saw the light, we can get into that if we want. Ten years later, I went back to the Amazon and, and, and made the transition kind of back. But there were the I was making these own bridges in my life. So in answer to your question, I would written five books on communism, and then I later wrote. I four books on economics, global economics, and then the fifth book, which ties the two together. It's just touching the Jaguar, which is the
0: That was all. John, talk a little bit about uh, your disillusionment with the world of international economic development and how... You know, I was reminded of uh, a quote from Eric Hoffer who said, things start out as a movement, then they become a business, and then they become a racket. That's kind of the normal trajectory in, if you're not careful about many things. Huh? It felt like you discovered something that you thought was trying to do good in the world that had devolved into a kind of racket.
2: Yeah, that's, that's totally true, Raj. I, uh, when I became an economist after the Peace Corps, I thought I was doing the right thing. Uh, my job, and especially then within a couple of years, I became chief economist and. My job was to convince the leaders of countries to accept huge loans from the World Bank or other financial institutions. But the money never went to the countries. They, they had to take on the debt and use their resources like oil as collateral. But the money went to our own corporations, the Bechtels and Halliburtons and you know, the General Electrics, to build big infrastructure projects in those countries, power plants and industrial parks and, and highways and ports. And these things helped a few wealthy individuals, but they didn't help the majority of the people because the majority of the people lost, the money was diverted from social things like education and healthcare to pay off the, the loans. So the American companies were making lots of money. The few wealthy families in these countries were doing very well. And the statistics showed, So, but I didn't, I didn't understand that dynamic at the beginning. What I understood at the beginning What's what the statistics show is that if you invest a lot of money in a poor country, if you invest it into infrastructure, the economy grows and it does. Statistically, the GDP, the gross domestic product grows. So I thought for a number of years that I was doing the right thing because it's what's taught in business school, it's what the World Bank promotes. But over time, I began to see that it was only helping these wealthy people and that they are the GDP. So even like in the United States, if you take the United States, there's three individuals who have as much wealth as half the population of the United States. If those three individuals made 10 percent on their investments last year, and half the population lost 3 percent, the GDP was still growing at something between three and four percent. And that's true all over the world. So what I began to understand is that we were we were we were selling a false perception. You get back to that perception, the perception. That investing in getting big profits for our corporations and helping a few wealthy families was helping everybody in the country, and it was creating a reality that was making the wealthy wealthier, the big corporations wealthier, but the poor were were not are getting poorer or or staying at, at at the same level. And over time, I began to see that, and that's when I it took me about ten years before I finally got out.
0: I remember you telling us the story as we were driving across a dam that was built in Ecuador. And I think you had been involved in in the financing of that. And and didn't you actually have some death threats and you had to fear for your own safety at some point because of your outspokenness?
2: Yes, uh, that's been a a threat. And I actually, after the book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman came out about three or four months after that, I was supposed to speak at the United Nations and uh, I was The the night before I was supposed to speak there, I I was poisoned and and rushed to a hospital in New York, uh, Lenox Hill Hospital, where they ended up removing a third, uh, uh, sorry, 70% of my large intestine. Um, And that's an, you know, I mean, what I came to understand as I looked into this more was that I probably wasn't poisoned by the CIA or NSA or one of these organizations that people suspected because if they try to poison me, I, I wouldn't be speaking to you now, <laughs> probably. Plus they knew that for them, a book is not that big a deal. It's not immediate. It takes time for these books and movies but they you know they, 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 they you know they don't like people who are an immediate threat. and they realize that if if something happens to me, uh, my books are gonna sell like wildfire. I mean, I, to Confessions has sold about two and a half million copies, but it would have probably sold a lot more if somebody, was, <laughs> if I had died a mysterious death and that's exactly the opposite of what they want. So yeah, this, there was a, and I should mention it and we can go in, I don't wanna keep talking here, but when I had my, that, that part of my intestine removed, it all actually in the long run, it, it, it created an amazing, physical shape-shift in my body. Get into it if you want, but I'll turn it over to you.
0: Tell us about that, please. Okay.
2: Well, I spent two weeks in this hospital in New York, Lenox Hill, and when I got out, the uh, gastroenterologist, who was a very academic and intellectual and interesting character, man, uh, at, at the last meeting I had with him before flying back home, where I lived at the time was Florida, uh, he, he he held up, he, he, I was in his office, and he said, you know, while you've been in the hospital, I read this book, Shapeshifting, that you wrote. He said, you know, I should be telling you right now that you are a carnivore, and you shouldn't eat any vegetables or, or fruits, or, or really minimize them, because carnivores have very short and int- large intestines, Uh, herbivores have very large ones and omnivores like humans have something in between. You've just, I've just taken 70% of your intestines. So you've now become a carnivore. But he said, you know, I read your book, Shapeshifting, and I think if you practice the things you write about, you can change that. Because he said, when you came in here, you had seven feet of large intestine, I took five. But you had 25 feet of small intestine, of which the last five feet don't really perform much of a function other than to connect to the large intestine. I think if you practice what you talk about in these books, you can shape shift that five feet of small intestine into large intestine and live a perfectly normal life. Well, it's happened, Raj, Timothy. I have to tell you, I'm a vegetarian, essentially. When I go in the Amazon, I'm with people that rely on meat I'll, I'll, I'll go along with their customs but for, for, I'm, for the rest of my life i'm totally a vegetarian so that happened and it's, it's you know it's one of those things that people talk about as being miraculous but the fact of the matter is it's not all that miraculous it's a shape-shift and it's, it's it's due to changing our perception and changing the reality around that
1: well i love that uh, that story for the element of sort of the modern economic theory and you're being on the cutting edge of that in terms of the billions of dollars that were being invested in some of these projects um, and your ability to be on the ground and understand that there's a different reality on the ground that you were perceiving and being sensitive to and in your in your latest book you certainly start to describe this very eloquently but then you also start to bring in this idea of the life economy and the death economy and you know, sort of a parallel with what, you know, we were just talking about in terms of economic development traditionally and maybe what was on the ground. So maybe tell us a little bit about that, that life and death economy and and how you came to frame it that way.
2: Sure. What I was really creating, you know, I was one of the soldiers in the trenches of creating this death economy, which is an economic system that is consuming itself into extinction. You know, we're in the short term, we're ravaging the very resources upon which the long term depends. Corporations do this, you know, executives are in there for a few years and they're not looking at the long term very much. Uh, And also there's a there's a large function of based on on war, the threat of war. So the the military industry is very large in this death economy. Um, That death economy is based on one perception. And that is the perception that we that corporations must mac- maximize short-term shareholder profits, and individuals should maximize their material consumption, uh, regardless of the social and environmental costs. Yeah. Now that's perception. It's create, but it, and it really was it really came into power in 1976. this one moment, you know, it had been building before then. It had been a long history of building up to this. But in 1976, when Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in economics. That was one of his main theses. In fact, he said that if we maximize short-term profits, all the environmental and social problems will take care of themselves. Well, you know, and, 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 and Friedman, even though that had been building up, von Hayek had said something similar a few years earlier when he got the Nobel Prize, but Friedman had incredible credibility. Mm. You know, he was an advisor to, to Reagan and, and Thatcher and, and to governments in Chile, all over the world. And people had tremendous respect for him. And this caught on. And so since then, corporate executives, that's been their goal. You've got to maximize short-term profits. And that's Wall Street pushes and pushes and pushes them to do that. And, and that's created this death economy. The life economy, on the other hand, is based on a perception that we need to maximize long-term benefits for people and nature. And we pay people, we give decent rates of return to investors, we pay workers to clean up pollution, you know, to mine all the plastic that's in the oceans and recycle it. We, We pay to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle, to create new technologies. Uh, so we all we got to do is change that perception again it's it's that idea that our perception creates our reality if you have a perception that you've got to maximize short-term profits it, it, it CEOs then come into it and they say well you know, I've got to do whatever it takes, including corrupting politicians, or corrupting them by giving them, you know, huge campaign donations, it's become legal, now; corruption has become legal in that regard, uh, by destroying the environment. I've got to do whatever it takes to maximize short-term profits. But if you change that perception to long-term benefits, something entirely different happens. And, you know, we can get into what the virus, coronavirus, its impact here, but even before that, we were on the path to change. I was very encouraged. Conscious capitalism, and you know that's that is moving us toward a life economy. The Green New Deal is moving us toward a life economy. B corporations, benefit corporations, all of those are moving that way. In August of of, of two thousand two thousand eighteen, the same year that Raj and I were in the Amazon together. Uh, the the, the, I think the, the, um, the board the uh, the round the, the business the business roundtable. Uh, 180 some odd executives from some of the largest corporations in the world came together and they basically said we've got to create a life economy <laughs> they mm. didn't use those terms but they said it can no longer just be about maximizing short-term profits we have to work toward taking care of our employees and uh, our consumers and the suppliers and the communities where we work but we've been on this trajectory mm. Oh, I think we're being pushed by, it. I think this virus has pushed us even harder to see that we must move quickly.
1: Yeah, and I love that because it also goes to some of the stories you write about, about being in the forest and the jungles and the perceptions that some of the native peoples had around how things were so interconnected. And I, I love in your your recent book, you, you you talk about going out into the forest and there was this plan that somehow you could turn these Amazonian Amazonian jungles into farmland and that would be that would be fine. And then somebody took you out and said, look, you see how interconnected these things are, but there's only like a few inches of topsoil. And if you cut down all the trees, the topsoil washes away. And what you're actually left with, once all the vegetation has died, because the trees are gone, is a very hard-baked surface that you couldn't grow anything on and you become basically a semi-arid the desert, um, and the native peoples understood that, but but we didn't, and and that's where I, I, you know, I connected your story about the the life economy being partly related to the perception those people had about, hey boys, we're all connected here.
2: <laughs> yes, and unfortunately, you know, what, what what happened even as we've moved in the United States and China has moved to becoming. more conscious of not creating pollution and and many other countries have in in some respects we've been exporting that so you know we don't drill for oil off the coast of california or many coasts in the united states but we instead we drill for oil in the heart of the amazon and uh and we do it with a lot fewer uh, restrictions a lot fewer regulations so if we if we were to if we drill off the coast of the united states there's very strong regulations and by god if you have an oil spill you're going to clean it up you're going to spend whatever it takes to clean it up as we saw with bp oil spill in the, in the gulf the oil spill in the amazon the texco did it was eight, about 80 times larger than that and they haven't paid a cent they refused to pay to clean it up and the regulations are not strictly enforced there so it's it, you know it's yes so we've so the next move now is to truly understand uh, the importance of coming together as a global community that it it's it, we can't just, you know, save the climate of the United States or England or, or anywhere else. We've got to it's the whole world and I think the coronavirus has helped us see that that, you know, everybody's been impacted. In the past if you had a once in 100 year event and they were happening every year or so, a hurricane an oil spill uh, fires uh, tsunamis uh, earthquakes whatever um, the indigenous people always said well that's mother nature pachamama speaking to us but we would say well this is local you know if if i survive the hurricane out, the outside world is going to come to my assistance this water is going to arrive and food's going to arrive at some point it's just it's local um, but the coronavirus has taught us the Pachamama speaking to the whole world, everybody on the planet, including those deep in the Amazon have been impacted. Every animal, like this lovely small jaguar I've got over my shoulder here, um, the animals are all impacted in one way or another. So we, we no longer can look for help from the outside world because we're it. There no other outside world. And, and, I, and, I th- and my Amazonian friends who I've been in touch with uh, during this pandemic uh, by phone and, and, and internet from time to time uh, will, will tell us that this, it's, it's, nature is speaking to us very strongly now, that the, the, the microbial world, the invisible world is, is stepping forth and, and teaching us that we have to come together. You know, we we can't stop the virus in London or in Boston where Raj is or near Seattle where I am. Uh, we've got to we got to stop it everywhere. We've got to deal with it. We've got to it's global. We've all got to come together.
0: John, one of the things I learned from you and one of the books that you wrote is called "The World Is as You Dream It," and and the beautiful wisdom around the dream cultures of the indigenous people there that. I think in one of your books you wrote if you if you were you were asking the shaman about how did the world become such a mess, and he said, well, that was your dream, and that's those are the consequences of the dream. He said, what do we do about it? So well, you need to dream a new dream right And so if you could talk about that a little bit, uh, what does that mean to you this idea of the world is as you dream it, and how do we need how do we dream a better dream collectively?
2: Mm-hmm. well, that's thanks, Raj. it's uh... so the dream, and and when they say the word dream, they're really talking about perception. They're not just talking about the nighttime. It may may come in nighttime dreams, but it's also our our value system. Uh, It's that perception of what it means to be successful. And uh, so after I left uh, being an economic hitman, uh, I went back to Ecuador. I went back to the people who'd saved my life when I'd been a Peace Corps volunteer. And I said, you know, now I want to come and help you. I want to help you save your forests because I knew they were under attack and they said, well, that's great. <laughs> but don't come here and try to change us. We're not destroying the forest. It's you, it's your oil companies, it's your, it's your cattle ranches, it's your mining companies. And most of all, it's your dream. It's the dream of the modern world, a dream, a perception that what we need to do is short term profits is build bigger buildings and, and more buildings and, and have more cars and so on and so forth. So they said, you've got to go back and change the dream of your people. And that's when I founded an organization called Dream Change, and then later the Pachamama Alliance, and began writing these five books on shamanism, which I wrote before I ever wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Um, so again, it's for, for them, it's quite clear. It's about changing our perception of what it means to be human on this planet. And you know, let's face it, we humans are the pilots of this space station Earth. And in recent years, we've been guiding her toward disaster, the death economy. So now it's time to do what, what, what both of you are so dedicated to: the conscious capitalism, turn things around, reboot the navigation system, pilot toward a life economy, pile, you know, pilot toward something that's toward, a, toward an economic, social, economic, governmental systems that are that are actually renewable resources. And you know, if we look at human history, we've been around for two hundred thousand plus years uh, as human beings, as we know ourselves. (laughs) And for most of that time, we've lived in life economies, and and the goal was always the long term. You know, the famous seventh generation. And I got to say, all the indigenous people I know, they don't think seven generations ahead, but they think two or three or four. Uh, They think of their grandchildren, their great grandchildren. And throughout most of history, that's what it's been like. And that's what the indigenous traditional people still live traditional hunter and gatherer lives still live that way. It's only been in the blink of an eye historically, we could say maybe a couple of thousand years, but especially the last couple of hundred years and especially since 1976, you know, when Milton Friedman made that statement that we've really moved radically, rapidly, exponentially into this idea that it's not about long term, it's about short term. And, and so I, you know, that's one of the great things that the Mayan people of Guatemala have to teach us that the people of the Amazon and Andes have to teach us and, you know, I take people to all these different groups. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's a lesson that throughout history, for 200,000 years, human beings have understood. And here we are, supposedly the smartest we've ever been, <laughs> the smartest species on the planet. But we've missed up until now the most important part of what it means to be human, and how to be the pilot of the space station. But I don't mean to be negative, because I really feel that this is all changing. There is a new trajectory. And the two of you represent that so very, very well in the programs that you're implementing. And, and, and it's, it's, it's happening to make sure it keeps happening happening faster.
1: I love the way you, you've you described it. It's a beautiful way of describing sort of the, the human species journey we've been on. And um, earlier today, I was in a, a seminar. Uh, the British Academy over here is sponsoring a program on the future of the corporation. And today we were talking about purpose and impact. And we had a um, Al Gore, when he left uh, the American political scene, he helped form an investment group called Generation uh, Investment, and David Blood, a former Goldman Sachs partner, co-founded it with him, and um, And they were talking today about the incredible, or at least David was talking today about the incredible returns that are available from impact investing. So it's almost like we've now got a new name for it, we're calling it impact investing. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's part of this perceptional change, I think, that you're talking about. We're starting to go over that perception bridge a little bit. Now, having said that, I mean, there's these really positive things out there. When, when Raj wrote Firms of Endearment and then redid the pro, the book, showed these great economic charts that show, listen, businesses that operate this way, they're just better businesses, you know, and that's the core of our sort of whole conscious capitalism Uh, story is you know we have to change that narrative exactly the way you said that perception and yet and yet for you know there's economic data that shows this is a better way there's sort of a history and a whole sort of um you know natural story about why we should be behaving differently and yet we don't and this is the part that i was intrigued by because when i work with some leadership teams and ceos what I sort of get is there's this fear, you know, like, you know, I I go back to the old way, the, the, because that's the safe way. And, you know, so there's this fear that many businesses or leaders have that somehow, um, they won't be successful or they, they won't be able to maintain their position if they go on this journey. And, and I'm just curious because you know, the title of your book is Touching the Jaguar, which is really about facing our fears. <laughs> so when, when you look at that perception bridge, when you look at touching the Jaguar and you look at where we are from your economist's eyes, what, 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 do we, what needs to shift? Where should we be pushing that story uh, to another level that will, that will help people touch the Jaguar?
2: Yeah, you know, Timothy, and the, the subtitle of Touching the Jaguar, incidentally, is "is Transforming Fear into Action to Change Your Life and the World. It's not the cover of the book, you know. And it, it is about fear, and, and it's fear of change. You know, people don't like change, and it's hard to accept that. I had a very difficult time in the Amazon accepting that that food that was making that, I mean, it was pretty, it, if you think about it, it's pretty obvious. I'm living with people who, the men carry dead, Animals that weigh three hundred pounds, like big, uh, uh, what do you call them? Pickeries, pic- uh, uh, wild boars, out of the jungle. These guys have got legs with muscles that will make uh, soccer players jealous, you know. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're so healthy and robust, and they're eating these foods. But I'm there, and I'm like, no, oh, the foods are making me sick. Well that doesn't make any sense does it rationally but but i've got this ingrained in me this this idea that you've got to eat certain types of food or be you know, you know so anyway we really have a tough time changing we fear change but when we touch that fear we gain so much, and Indigenous people, I think, really understand the importance of change. They—they're always changing, you know. The river—if the river starts to rise, they know they got to move their village. They're open to change. They see change as an opportunity to explore a new territory, to create new uh, technologies, if you will. And of course, we've seen that too during wars. That's when we create some of our most uh, amazing technologies, or you know, that kind of thing. So, but. I think above all else, this, this uh, coronavirus has taught us that we can change. We've all had to change. We've all changed. And maybe it's been uncomfortable, but it's also been incredibly enlightening you know the fact we're doing this now we might have done this before the coronavirus but I'm on the board of directors of the Pachamama Alliance and we every year four times a year used to get together everybody flew to Los Angeles to San Francisco or drove cars to San Francisco and met there the last two board meetings we've done this way and we've been able to bring in 250 of our top supporters who are all over the world which we never did before on and on you we all know uh, so this, this this fear of change, and that's the fear we must touch. And I, I do want to say that I meet so many corporate executives that want to change. Here's an example. So a couple of years ago, I was speaking at a big international economic forum in, in St. Petersburg, Russia. There were 12,000 people there, including pre- President Putin, Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, <laughs> and And, and, you know, corporate executives from all the big banks in the United States and all over the world and a lot of big companies. And I would talk about the life and death economy. And during the receptions afterwards, you know, the Russians have some great receptions, incidentally. If you you want, if you you like caviar and vodka.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't, really? (laughs) (laughs) Or champagne is also,
2: I don't prefer that. But anyway, uh, and, and, and I would get into these discussions with, with some of these top executives who would say things like, you know, I get grandkids. I want to do the right thing. But I know that if, if, if I do the right thing, I, my company may lose market share in the short term or may our stock prices may go down over the next couple of months. And if that happens, my, my, Wall Street will fire me. My top investors will probably get rid of me and they'll replace me with someone who only cares about stock prices or market share. And so they say, please go out there, write books, go out there and, and, and tell people you know, it's, it's up to the, cons- the consumer, the employee, the investor, we all have to push toward this. And you know if, if you're an entrepreneur starting a company that's a little different, but if we're trying to change some already existing huge corporation the inertia is there, Wall Street has a problem with them making these changes. And, and it's up to us. Um, I'm reminded of Franklin Roosevelt, who toward the end of World War II, one of his last meetings, he met with the uh, uh, leaders of the auto workers unions. And at the end of the meeting, as the people who were leaving the, the Oval office, he was taking their hands. He said, I think you all know that I'm with you. I want to do what, what you want me to do. But now you've got to go out and get your rank and file to push me to do it. That's the only way I'm going to be able to get it through Congress and, 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 the, and, the, and the voters. And every corporate executive, most all corporate executives, if they work for a publicly traded company especially, uh, faces this. And we, the people, we, the consumers, we, the employees, we, the investors, we, we get to push. We get to the push. Then take all of us.
0: One of the interesting things I learned when we were together, uh, John part of the Pachamama Alliance, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that as well. Is this idea that has grown now that nature has rights in many countries like Ecuador, I think Ecuador was the pioneer in that, but instituting that into their constitution, uh, do you think that's a pathway forward that we need to create? I think there are 38 countries now that do that.
2: Well, yeah, I, I think it's, it's important, but Ecuador is an interesting example because although they were the first to put it in their constitution, uh, they haven't done a very good job of enforcing it, and uh, you know the United uh, U.S. corporations like the oil companies like Texaco, Chevron have done a terrible job there, as I mentioned earlier. Terrible pollution that they don't clean up. But to, and now today the Chinese are going in big time, and they're mining. They're building these huge mines for uh, copper, gold, silver, and, and precious metals, there, right. and then and. They're putting things at, at risk. You mentioned earlier, Raj, that dam that we went by, the Agoyan Dam that I helped finance in Ecuador. And that put the comp- country into debt. But i got to say that our American engineers did a damn good job. It's a good dam. <laughs> and it's worked for many, many years, as you saw. The Chinese recently put the country in deep debt, and, and they built the, another dam. Uh, which was supposed to serve a third of the country and they happened to build it on a fault line and next to an active volcano and in the middle of extremely fragile rainforest and it it has never functioned at full it's uh, it's eight generators only four have ever operated and i don't think any of them are operating right now they did a bad engineering job so despite these laws and 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 i and 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 it's i'm writing a book right now the next book i'm writing is about the relationships between china the new silk road in the world and the united states and i actually think you know there's some real opportunities if we can all work together i think the chinese have they understand the problem and i'm not i don't want to badmouth the chinese i also don't want to be saying be saying that <laughs> that that they're on the right completely the right path. So that, that's both sides of everything. But and in response to your question, yes, we need those kinds of laws, but we also need to make sure that, that they're enforced and they're enforced in a way that's, that's global. And again, I'd go back to some of the US laws around pollution, around drilling for oil, around so many aspects of our pollution that we enforce in the United States, but it's exported. And in a way, the Chinese are doing something similar. Uh, they're, they're, they're doing a pretty good job in their country of trying to reduce pollution, getting you know, trying not to build more coal-fired plants, for one thing, but they're exporting coal-fired plants. Um, so it's, you know, the challenge here is, is to do something that human beings have never done, and that is see us as one species, regardless of culture, religion, color, um, ethnicity, country, that, that we are all, on this planet together and we're all piling this piloting this space station and i really think that the, the the coronavirus is the message in that direction whether you look at it from a shamanic standpoint or a scientific standpoint
0: it's giving us well and it even goes beyond that even if we come together as one species we are one of many species and all of us have to be uh, able to play our role in that interconnected system right i think that's what to me, what I learned from the uh, Amazon experience, among many other things, is just the sense that because we don't come into this planet, we come out of this planet, we're as much as part of nature as a tree is, and, and the way that the people, the shamans there, talk about that in the West, we connect with everything from our heads, and that they say you need to connect from down here, right, from your heart and your body, and connect from spirit to spirit, including the spirit of even what we consider inanimate. Things like stones and rocks and so forth. I mean, there's a there's a deep veneration for that. Yes, and it's really something. I think that uh, I was really moved by. I constantly reminded myself to connect from here.
2: A wonderful point, and yes, it's absolutely true. It's the spirit and everything of them, and and they're all speaking to us. So the earthquakes, uh, the fires. Uh, The rising sea levels, the melting glaciers, those are all what we would call coming from inanimate objects. They're all speaking to us. The animals that are going extinct are sacrificing themselves in a way to send us this message. Uh, The coronavirus itself has come out of animals, as did HIV, as did this earlier SARS virus, and uh, they've come out of animals, they've come out of nature. And they're all speaking to us very, very, very strongly. You know, I'm reminded of the time when I took a group like the one you were on, Raj. I don't think we, we can go to this particular shaman lady up in the Am- a- Andes named, the wonderful name of Marijuana. <laughs> and somebody in the group asked, uh, so, Maria Juana, what do we need to do to save the earth? And, and she laughs and she says, you know, the earth, Pachamama's not in there. We humans are. but We're just like so many fleas. And if you get to be too much of a nuisance, she'll just rr, rr, shake us all off. Marijuana points up at Imbabura, this powerful volcano that hovers over her house. And she said, you know, just a few years ago, that volcano was covered with a massive ice cap. and It isn't anymore. Hachamama is speaking to us. She, she's not shaking us off here, but she's twitching. And, and uh, the twitching has grown worse since the... And every time we've had a major hurricane, or once in a 100 year event, I thought about marijuana. And now the, the, this virus is is a big twitch. It's a big twitch. We just need to totally comprehend it and, and give thanks if the world is speaking to us. And I don't, I'm not trying to downplay the terrible suffering, the people who've lost loved ones, and all the problems it's caused us. Those, those are all very real and tragic. And we need to listen so that we don't if we don't listen something more tragic is going to happen in the future i think and timothy just before we began you were saying that you were meeting some people earlier today that were involved in developing uh, vaccine, vaccines and they're expecting something they're planning on something worse coming i don't think it will get worse if we just listen but if we don't for sure it will
1: we're going to be playing a lot of defense against nature <laughs> and uh, well you know as you were speaking as raj talked about you know sort of um you know, giving rights to nature, you know, there's this movement, the ESG movement, which is um, starting to pick up steam. You know, I think when I started monitoring it a couple of years ago, it was like an alphabet soup. There were so many different things. Now there's a couple of major efforts underway to come up with two or three well-described standards. And, you know, um, you have things like the Financial Times running moral money columns <laughs> once a week and now tracking ESG as one of the one of the sections that they, they regularly talk about in their paper. So I'm, I'm also a little hopeful that maybe that is an angle where we're starting to start to say that, hey, we have to look at what a company is doing and we're going to look at it with this kind of report card that talks about the environment that talks about society and then says, you know, how are you governing? Are, are you transparent? Are you fair? And all these things. And, and I'm curious whether that whole ESG world and impact investing, how does that resonate with you? Does that feel like it's directionally correct? Um, or do you think there's something else that's needed to, to move that to a different level?
2: Well, I think we're in a transition period where those things are transitionally correct and 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 we need to push harder and, and we we really need to get as, as raj mentioned bring this heart this heart and and mind idea together so traditionally we've been very oriented toward uh, toward um uh, intuition human beings and we've, we've we've listened we've been very spiritually connected with our surroundings but in the last <laughs> moving up through the last thousands of a couple of thousand years, we become more and more oriented toward toward the aspect that says we are not part of nature we're a part we are a part from nature, not a part of and our job is to exploit nature well i I, we're, I think we're now we're, we're moving all of these things that you'd mentioned, Timothy, are moving us in that direction of realizing that we are part of, and we really have to respect that. And we have to respect the, uh, the rights of nature, all the rights of nature. Yes, uh, now the indigenous people will tell you, people, a, lot of, a lot of people may believe in past and future lives, but I think most, most of the people that we probably know would believe that our past lives are human. Well, the indigenous people will tell you that their past lives and their future lives are, are trees and plants and rocks and animals. Uh, that they all have spirit, and that in each one of these lives we've got something to learn, and and if you it, with that kind of a belief system, you're a lot more careful of how you treat trees and rocks and animals. If if you have that 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 background, so I think that uh, that's a very important aspect of this: is how do we open our hearts and our minds to really understand that um, this cat who just Left me in an hour there uh, shuffling papers on my desk. <laughs> uh, she, uh, you know, she she's a great teacher for me, and, and uh, to recognize her rights and and she, you know, she, yeah, she's got a right to go over there and shuffle those papers. She's gonna knock them off the desk pretty soon, and that's a message for me, probably that I should I should stop fooling around with so much paperwork and play with her instead. But I I think that you know it's it's so important that we really really listen. The scientific community now has, has come to understand through, through, through this coronavirus that you know uh, when you don't have factories running, you don't have as much pollution. There's, there's no question about it. We could all talk about it before it's become very very obvious. Um, it's amazing how the how the pharmaceutical companies around the world, whether it's in Russia or China or England, or the United States, or wherever, have, have created vaccines in such an amazingly short period of time. Now, the indigenous people will tell you that the vaccine is the spirit, and when people talk about not believing or trusting in the vaccine, they'll say, well, don't, it's not, no, it's not about the chemical, it's about the spirit, and what you're doing is you're injecting people with the spirit that's responding to the spirit of the, the disease. that's exactly what the disease wants. That's exactly what the virus is there for. It's there to tell us that we can overcome it. And the vaccine overcomes it in the short run. But in the long run, the only way to overcome these sorts of things is to change the way we live. I think that's a wonderful metaphor uh, for so much that's going on. The rights of nature laws are a great short run uh, uh, movement. But in the long run, we've got to really obey them we've got to enforce them we have got to listen to them we can say that about so many things
0: wow thank you so much john you know i feel like you're a gift to humanity you know we're all fortunate to be sharing the planet with you and somebody with your great depth and and wisdom guiding us in the right way i recommend strongly to all of our listeners john has 10 books now they are incredibly readable incredibly inspiring and touching and moving and so please do uh, look up his work and join the pachamama alliance they're doing great things in the world um, take their seminar awakening the dreamer changing the dream which i think comes from some of the language we heard from john today and again it's really been a joy to have you with us john thank you
1: thank you john it's just great to uh, to hear that ancient wisdom being brought into into the modern reality that we're trying to deal with and this whole issue of connecting our hearts and as leaders, and everybody's a leader in their own way, but being able to connect to that heart and come from a different place. I mean, that's a big part of this journey to uh, correct some of uh, the mistakes that we've been making. So thank you so much for sharing that ancient wisdom with us today. My pleasure, Timothy. Thank you for
2: inviting me and yeah people can go to my website johnperkins.org and get all that information if you write it down as far as I was talking about Pachamama and the Alliance and so forth um I would just like to leave by saying I, I think we're we all are living in a very blessed time we're blessed we're blessed alive right now where we can where nature is speaking so clearly so loudly and we can listen to her we are listening to her and to be in the roles that you and in the other play, uh, of bringing this message out that's so essential, it's so powerful, it's so inspiring. I thank you for doing what you're doing and I'm glad to, to be a small part of it. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And thank you, listeners, or those of you that have enjoyed today's podcast. Please note on whatever channel you're listening, there is a little button somewhere that says subscribe. And so if you enjoyed this, please hit that subscribe button. And if you want to know more about the things Raj and I are doing or leave us a comment, please come to theconsciouscapitalists.com and there's a place where you can leave a comment for us. And of course, if you want to know more about the practice of conscious capitalism, we do have a book, The Conscious Capitalism Field Guide. And Raj, if they want to know more about Conscious Capitalism more broadly, what should they do?
0: Go to consciouscapitalism.org and find a chapter close to where you are or think about starting a chapter. if is.
1: Wonderful. Thank you all very much.